This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We have lost Mike Hogan. He either has the flu or has taken off for early Christmas. He actually ran away to join the circus. <laughs> Zach Efron was here. It was actually pretty exciting. Or, uh, as Richard noted, may have run off to the circus with Hugh Jackman. Um, but we have a lot to talk about, as this is the last episode we'll be recording in 2017. We will have an episode next week. We've got some interviews that we've been conducting lately to share. We've all gathered here to kind of catch up on the glut of films that are out in the world uh, right now, starting with Star Wars The Last Jedi, which is the biggest movie in all of the world. Uh, and then we'll also be diving into The Greatest Showman and All the Money in the World, these two kind of puzzling movies that Richard has reviewed, uh, has has glimpsed the future, which I think is circus musicals and hastily reshot Ridley Scott dramas. But it's a shame that Mike's not here because after he saw The Last Jedi last week, he messaged all of us with kind of the idea that maybe The Last Jedi should be rushing into the best picture race. It had this flood of critical raves. But Joanna, you were saying that even if there was all this affection for the movie when it first screened for critics, that there has been enough backlash and conversation around it that that probably wouldn't happen anymore. Am I getting that right? I was at the LA premiere for Star Wars and everyone there was either like a critic who was in love with it or involved in the film somehow. And so that was just like the most celebratory moment. And even then, like our friend of the podcast, Dave Gonzalez, who wrote about a lot of Star Wars stuff for the New York Times this year, it was like, this is going to be really divisive in the fandom. Like, that's what he said that night. You know, a lot of people didn't believe him. And he was right. And so I think while the, well, we'll call it backlash to Last Jedi from a vocal minority that is weaponized on the internet, while I don't think that's a, that'll affect the bottom line or really the legacy of the film with the view of long history. Right now, I think the film is just like a little too controversial. <laughs> Star Wars, uh, but it's too controversial for it to get like that Academy backing would be my guess. Well, the thing about the backlash that puzzles me is everything because I know that there's a backlash and I've tried to kind of investigate it a little bit, but I just get very tired very quickly. <laughs> so Joanna, could you, for people like me who are just their eyes crossed, even though I'm a Star Wars fan, I just can't look too closely at this. What is the general tenor of this? What is what is the major issue that people are having with this movie? I think it's important to take two different approaches here. In that one segment of the backlash is that really unreasonable, knee-jerk, stereotypical white male fanboy reaction. It's not the entirety of it, but that's part of it that I believe, uh, according to some of the very vile messages that I've received on Twitter, that they're very mad about sort of the progressive politics as they view um, that Star Wars is espousing that like strong women leaders should be respected or, you know, people of color have a place in this narrative. Spoilers for The Last Jedi, but you've got the old guard, the old white Star Wars ending and this new one coming up behind it, full of women and people of color. 
And people are objecting to this franchise that started as a Nazi allegory. Just, uh, you know, if people fighting against Nazis, just, you know, this is none of this seems new to me in Star Wars. Yeah, except like it was white people fighting against Nazis. And now it's like women and people of color fighting against Nazis. Anyway, th- then there's like the more thoughtful, I like to call them thoughtful fans. I mean, because they're not like burning their Star Wars shirts on Twitter or whatever, which some people are doing. And the more thoughtful fans who I think they might have a better opinion of the movie the more they see it. I've certainly liked the movie more each time I've seen it. The main sticking point there seems to be the characterization of Luke Skywalker. There's a huge disconnect for a lot of people between the Luke we meet at the end of The Return of the Jedi and the Luke we see in this film that I think Ryan Johnson really does a good job of laying the groundwork of how that hero could have gotten to this point. But for a lot of people who have held on to Luke Skywalker as this certain iconic character in their mind, they don't really feel like the connections are there. That's the major criticism I've heard and the major like thoughtful criticism I've heard. I've also had people like nitpicking some stuff. Well, Star Wars fans nitpicking is also nothing new. Sure, sure. But like the Luke thing and this being some sort of betrayal of George Lucas's plan, which is... I don't think the case. So that seems to be the main the main thing that I've seen. So it seems worth noting that despite the backlash, this movie is a hit. It's going to continue to be a hit. At, at this point, it would be hard for a Star Wars movie not to be kind of a global phenomenon. Uh, and also, I don't think any of us are arguing that like the backlash is something that Academy voters are necessarily going to pay attention to. Like the people who are complaining about Luke Skywalker are probably not Academy voters. But it, it does seem like The Force Awakens is going to be a very big hit, a very well-liked movie that isn't for the many reasons we've discussed over the years uh, because of the Academy's taste is not going to be necessarily an Oscar player. I agree that it's not like the Academy members are hanging out in the dark corners of the internet that I am and reading these like long screeds about Luke Skywalker. But I think one of the problems for fans, honestly, was I think that larger narrative of the disparity between the metrics on the website Rotten Tomato and then that so many critics were like, this is the best Star Wars movie. I can only speak to the critics that I know personally. And I think one of the reasons for that is because it's such a departure critics were excited about it. But if fans were not reading those reviews and just looking at that Rotten Tomatoes score, they're like, this is the best Star Wars movie ever? Oh, because it's going to have all the things I love about a Star Wars. And that's not why a lot of critics responded to the film. And so then you've got this weird disparity on Rotten Tomatoes between the high critic score, which is like in the 90s, and then the audience score metric, which is in, in the 50s. There's no way to determine whether that the audience score is accurate of anything other than an angry vocal minority. But that disparity between those metrics has become a story over the weekend. That story of like, is this another case of for the fans, for the critics conversation that we've been having around like those DC superhero movies and stuff like that? Has that come to Disney's doorstep for the first time? That conversation, I think, is going to permeate into at least some of the Academy's consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I think that when it comes to a, a giant blockbuster that's going to necessarily get Oscar attention, like, you need something to be a consensus. You need it to be kind of like this definitive, like, all corners agree on it blockbuster, which is something like Dunkirk that we've talked about, which is a very arty movie, way weirder than Star Wars, that was also a box office hit. The interesting thing about Star Wars isn't even necessarily its awards prospects, but just the idea that this conversation is going to continue. Are fans going to do this with every single Star Wars movie? Like The idea is that Star Wars is trying to move past the Skywalkers, trying to do something different. Are they going to keep being mad forever about all this? The next movie is a total retread Han Solo prequel movie. So uh, I think we're safe at least for a year. Like If there are enough like Chewbacca's and Darth Vader's and like 
Greedos and whatever and, and Landos and the Han Solo prequel, then, you know, that is enough of a look back. I think that potentially fans won't be upset, but as long as the trilogy starring Daisy Ridley keeps sort of trying to push the needle forward, I think we are going to get some anger, but also, you know, it's worth noting that when the empire strikes back, which is considered the best Star Wars movie ever by most people, when that movie came out, a lot of fans didn't like it and critics hated it. And then the long lens of history was like, no, this is a great movie. And it's hard to judge the second installment in a trilogy without having seen the third. And so I think once we see the third and see where it's going from here, um, some minds will change and also rewatches will change the minds. So your question about like, are we going to do this every time there's Star Wars? I'm like, are we going to do this every time there's a movie? I'm exhausted. You know what I mean? Or, or every time there's an anything, cause like, People burning their Star Wars shirts on Twitter is like people burning their football jerseys is like people, you know, throwing their curries out the window. Like it's, it's just a year of nonsense and I am so tired of it. Oh my God. I'm so exhausted. Richard, I wanted to ask you as a critic who takes the time to write a review, how much does it drive you crazy when all anyone wants to talk about is the Rotten Tomatoes score and specifically how it's different from what the audience gave a score? Like to me, the, the Rotten Tomatoes aspect of all of this is like one of the most disheartening things. I really actually hate it. And I'll just be frank in that, like, I used to submit my reviews to Rotten Tomatoes and kind of be annoyed that I had to, you know, make the choice between fresh or rotten for a kind of middle of the road review. And then I just stopped doing it. I think someone over there is is putting some of my reviews on there. But I really increasingly resist it. I think Metacritic is a little bit better because it does a more sort of holistic look at the review rather than doing this binary for a long time people were like look it's good for critics it's a big site it's linking out to reviews you know but i don't think anyone's reading anything i think they're just looking at this thing and and so it's really reducing it to this like gladiatorial thumbs up thumbs down thing that saps any nuance out of the kind of writing that i and many better people like to do and 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 hopefully some people like to read so you know, we're talking about people burning shirts and throwing curries out the window or whatever. Like we've seen not just in movie criticism, obviously, or movie, you know, fandom, but this increasing kind of balkanization uh, where everyone is just like really, you know, getting very sort of tribal about things. And, and it's very yes or no absolutist stuff. And it has a parallel in Star Wars, doesn't it? You know, like, like dark and light. And it just, it's a little bit troubling that there's really no room increasingly uh, to exist in the middle. Yeah, like anecdotally, I will say that I like bringing up my sister because like, though she cares a lot about film, she's not like deeply engaged into it. And we used to have certain critics that we would share, like growing up, Mick LaSalle and the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and then sort of when we transitioned to reading more online, like Stephanie Zacharick, when she was re- writing for Salon. And in the past, she would send me a link and she'd be like, oh, Stephanie loves this movie. Like you pick a critic or you pick a couple critics, you figure out where your tastes align with them and where they don't and you follow them. Like that, I think, is the ideal of what engaging in film criticism should be if you can't read every single review that's out there. But now my sister, who is much busier these days because she's mom, will be like, yeah, we watched Home- Spider-Man Homecoming and I was really disappointed. I mean, it got like a 90 whatever on Rotten Tomatoes. And I was like, Morgan, why are you looking at Rotten Tomatoes? Like... Find your critic, read your critic. That's what we grew up doing. It's something that seeped into even people who like have a long history of engaging thoughtfully with criticism and that there are pluses of Rotten Tomatoes and there are also some like really lovely people that I know who work for Rotten Tomatoes. So I just don't want to like bury that site, but the increasing reliance on just metrics and numbers. And I, you know, I talked about this in this piece I wrote. It's like, I feel like every opening weekend we look at 
three different metrics and it's like the Rotten Tomatoes critics score, the audience score, whether that's the cinema score, uh, or the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. And then, uh, the box office number. And then if you just try to create a narrative around those three numbers, you don't have to read a single word of anything. And that, is a really shallow examination of a movie's impact, I think. And so, um, yeah, let me get off my high horse and my soapbox. And I was going to put out something that you said in the piece you wrote about this backlash, that the cinema score for Last Jedi is an A, because that's what they do when they talk to people who've just come out of a theater. They're not taking the self-selecting group that will go onto Rotten Tomatoes and rate a movie, something I've never done in my life. Uh, so you, when you're looking at people who just go and like, you know, I'm not really representative of an average moviegoer, but I think I'm an average Star Wars fan. And I walked out of that movie and I said, I like this movie. And I think a lot of people did too. And I think a lot of people will continue to do that and maybe not even be aware that there's this like firestorm brewing over the, you know, whatever self-selecting group wants to bury this movie and attack the critics for liking it. My favorite time anyone has ever like weaponized a score for something against me is, um, and that sounds like the weirdest thing I've ever said, but, uh, when I didn't like a very popular episode of Game of Thrones, not last season, but the season before, I didn't like it. A lot of people did, and that's fine. Um, but a lot of people told me I wasn't, I was, uh, wrong in my opinion, because it had a really high score, audience score on IMDb. Uh, how could a bad episode have a 99% uh, score on IMDb? And I was like, well, <laughs> let me talk to you about how little I respect the IMDb ratings. That's not to say that I don't respect like the opinion of the fan or whatever. That's not true. It's just like the people who would go and vote for a TV episode on IMDb, like is a very specific kind of person. And that's not, uh, you know, that's not a sampling of the large, you know, the larger audience. So. Well, you look at, um, you know, IMDb this week just released their like top 10 films of the year, not meaning the best films of the year, but meaning what the, you know, what people searched for or, or, or what pages they visited. And it's, you know, it's Justice League, it's Star Wars, it's, it, it's, you know, it's these big kind of fan movies. And so you're right, Joanna, the people engaging with this stuff don't necessarily represent everybody who's going to see a movie or going to see movies, you know, in general. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's skewed just like anything else is. And I think that like, that it's being taken at face value as like the voice of the people, uh, is, uh, a little bit, um, Speaking of IMDb, I think we're all aware of the phenomenon where a new kind of beloved by fans movie opens and it will like rocket to their IMDb top 250. Like the Dark Knight Rises was on there, even though that movie has, you know, not aged that well. Uh, Last Jedi is not on there. So the, uh, the IMDb effect is not working for that movie as part of this gigantic phenomenon that we're talking about. I mean, Joanna, you pointed out that Empire Strikes Back was not especially well received. Do we think that this will grow and kind of and work in the same way? I mean, I can't wait to see this movie again. I feel like it should, but uh, does it have the chance to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the same thing in reverse happened to The Force Awakens, where the conversation around that was overwhelmingly positive when it first came out. And a lot of that had to do with people waiting 30 years for this new stuff. You know, like there was a lot of that, like we've waited so long, we were so worried it would be bad and prequely. So like anything they resembling good, we were so excited about. I still love The Force Awakens. My love for it has not dimmed, but a lot of people have now changed their mind and they're like, oh, it's too nostalgia heavy. It's too whatever. Like if you want to grade it, the grade has dropped for The Force Awakens over just two years. And I, I can see the grade rising for The Last Jedi. What I'm most curious about you know, like, I don't think Disney's going to care too much about this until it affects their bottom line. Though there is a lesson that they can learn from Warner Brothers, because like, 
Warner Brothers endured all this critical backlash of like Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman and or, or yeah, and they were like, well, it doesn't matter, it's still making money. But then for them to double down and give Justice League, and then Justice League famously did not make as much money as it should have. You know, there is like a long term cause and effect. What I'm curious about is what happens now to Ryan Johnson's new trilogy that he was that I don't know why they announced before this movie came out, like wait why not wait uh to announce it why what's what's wrong with having announced it already because like what if they decide now not to go with it there's no way you know lucasfilm has made a lot of late in the game decisions to let go of people so i'm not gonna say there is no way if there is a precipitous box office drop off this weekend which i don't think there will be i don't but let's say there is and then Lucasfilm has to consider whether or not they want to put Ryan in charge of the trilogy when Ryan has been like smeared by some corners of the fandom as not understanding Star Wars. Then, you know, maybe they could reconsider that. I hope they don't. I think Ryan's great. I want to see his trilogy. I am supportive of that. I'm just like, if Lucas now has to change their mind, that's another example of Kathleen Kennedy being like, you know what? Never mind. And I support her being able to do that, but it feeds into this larger narrative of Lucas doesn't know what it's doing. So I just don't know why they uh, announced that trilogy like a month earlier than they needed to, you know? I have such a hard time thinking that the, any narrative of Lucasfilm doesn't know what it's doing can stick when, like, Rogue One had to go through painful reshoots, still made a ton of money, still relatively well-regarded. Like, they have a flawless track record. They've fixed all their mistakes ahead of time. And, I mean, if I were Disney, I would just, you know, say, we made a good movie. We know that we have a good movie. It's making money. And these fans who want to uh, kick and scream about it are welcome to, but they have a business to run. I think that probably the the one thing that troubles me about the new Ryan Johnson trilogy that's been announced is that um, I don't know if you guys saw this report, but Johnny Depp is playing every role in in all three wow. movies, which I think is a little problematic. So so we'll just have to see, you know. Wait, I heard they replaced him with Christopher Plummer in every role. Not they haven't yet. They haven't yet. But I think that, that they have they have Plummer on retainer, sort of just just in case. I'm Bobby Finger, and I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, "Who the heck is that?" Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we mentioned Christopher Plummer earlier. Uh, Richard, you have gotten to see what has to be the weirdest, not necessarily what's on screen is the weirdest, but the movie with the weirdest story behind it of this year. You saw All the Money in the World. It was filming, as far as I know, a week ago with uh, Christopher Plummer reshooting Kevin Spacey's scenes. And what was interesting in your review is that that isn't the part that makes this movie weird. Like the Christopher Plummer stuff works flawlessly, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, I don't, 
understand enough about the filmmaking process to really assess just how much really scott had to do but i can just say from like my my slight remove from that like the character j paul getty is in a ton of the movie this is not like a forcing you know cameo or supporting part it is a lead role essentially i mean you know he's in i think running and supporting but like it's just it's crazy and and it's also just not him being like you know creepily cgi'd into things like he's in the room with michelle williams and with mark Wahlberg. like they really did do actual reshoots and um it's 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 incredible what they do i mean you really you watch the movie and you know if you didn't know all this kind of drama you know that preceded it like you would just think oh yeah this is this was always how it's been that said i think that there's not a cgi you know creepy aesthetic but like the aesthetic of the movie as a whole is actually kind of not great like it's kind of this you know washed out kind of color palette and and uh it it, you know for for ridley scott who is known for his really stunning visuals even on smaller movies um that i think to me was the most jarring thing about the movie well, this movie's being sold as a thriller, kind of like a, you know, holiday season for adults, uh, you know, intellectual thriller. But it seems like a lot of it takes place in a mansion where Christopher Plummer is refusing to pay money. I believe it's two different mansions, but yes. Mm, um, yes. Yeah, well, when, you're, of, when you have all the money in the world, why settle uh, for one? Right. Which is a line that's said twice in the movie. Uh, all, the, all the money in the world. Um, yeah, it's a lot of mansions. It's a, it's a lot of, um, you know, a Charlie Plummer, no relation to Christopher, uh, is the kid. Uh, he plays Paul Getty, the one who's been kidnapped. Um and uh, so he's like in this, you know, southern Italian kind of farm. So there's that too, and, and a lot of Michelle Williams kind of smoking cigarettes and looking scared. Uh, she's great, and as is Charlie Plummer. But um, yeah, it, it's a funny movie in that, like, I, you know, it's something I was I was waiting for the screening to start this week, and I was just thinking, like, you know, it was my, it's my, the last new movie that I'll see in 2017, unless I just decide to go see Ferdinand for some reason. It's a movie about like insane sociopathic greed that has then been rocked by sexual assault allegations. I mean, is there no more fitting movie to end this year with, you know, in this very accidental way? I wish that all something I wrote about in my review is that I wish that all that timeliness or something had had kind of resonated more in the movie. But as is, it's just a kind of competent like thriller about an interesting, you know, few months in the 70s uh, when this incredibly powerful family was rocked and sort of torn apart by this kidnapping um you know the movie also does not go into what happened to paul getty after he was um freed from from captivity uh and it's a that's a really sad story that i think maybe the movie did not want to um send viewers out on that note yeah i talked to ridley scott for a piece that never wound up running because it was about kevin spacey's makeup job in the movie but he you know i kind of wanted to get on the idea like you're making this movie about a billionaire is it about trump and he's just like no it's not about trump he like had no interest in that he really just wanted to make this thriller particularly because he'd already made a movie this year like this even before the reshoots like this was kind of ridley scott flexing his muscles and being like i just turned 80 but i can still make one movie on top of another movie and prove that i can do it and i mean if, if nothing else these reshoots prove like he can do not doubt Ridley Scott for a second. Yeah, and I will say that, you know, for our awards angle, you know, it was surprising because people didn't really know even if the movie was done. Um, it was surprising that it got um, the the three, I believe, Golden Globe nominations that it did for director Ridley Scott, for Christopher Plummer, and for Michelle Williams. And the word is that the HFPA saw an unfinished version. Uh, having seen the movie... I understand why Michelle Williams and, and Christopher Plummer got their nominations. And I do, you know, given the feat of what he did in the, at the last minute, I do understand why Ridley's in there, too. Um, I don't think it was an unearned kind of 
blind vote where they just were like, "Yeah, sure, that too." I, I really think that there there actually is there there's merit there, and and so I don't I don't think it's going to be a big player at the Oscars, but you know I, I think that the HGFPA now that I've seen the movie seems a little less nuts than they did when I just saw the nominations, having not seen the Richard, movie. in your All the Money in the World review, you noted that uh, Michelle Williams is having a very weird winter, or weird December specifically, uh, because this and The Greatest Showman are opening, I think, opposite each other, or at least you have two strange Michelle Williams roles to choose from. Uh, but it seems to me that in The Greatest Showman, Michelle Williams is like the eighth most interesting thing going on. Yeah, I mean, she's perfectly fine. Like, she's good. She has one nice little song. Uh, but yeah, she's having a weird year. I mean, imagine those two movies coming out within like days of each other like one this bizarre circus musical the other other, this like fraught production um but yeah uh the greatest showman has become uh for anyone listening who follows me on twitter will know uh, a sort of kind of pet obsession of mine um just because i think the phrase hugh jackman circus musical is really funny you know so i had sort of whipped myself up into this kind of frenzy before seeing the movie and and i didn't didn't really know what i wanted it to be or what i thought it would be and it turns out that it's just it's fine the musical numbers as i say in the review that went up today um the musical numbers are good and 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 lively and two in particular uh one with zach efron and zendaya twirling around on acrobat ropes you know uh in the empty circus while they sing a love duet so so, you know, it has its merits, but I think that on the whole, it has this weird tinny kind of corporate fake uplift thing going for it that I think feels really cynical, especially given the, the context of, of this year and, and everything that's happening outside of, you know, movie going. So I wonder if that will resonate with people or if people will pick up on that the way that I did. Maybe I'm just inferring too much or bringing too much of my own political baggage into the theater. Yeah, I'm curious. What do you mean about the context surrounding the film? Well, I think in particular, you know, the big song that Fox has been touting in, in various YouTube videos and marketing materials is this song called This Is Me, which um, uh, Keila Settle, who's this wonderful Broadway actress, uh, has the lead vocals on that. And she plays the bearded lady in the movie. And the song is this empowerment anthem. And it comes at a time when when when. So the movie's about P.T. Barnum putting together the first modern circus. And so he assembles this this cast of, I'm not going to call them freaks, but, you know, they were called that to some extent um, in those days. Is that what they're called in the movie? Like, do they use that word? No, no. I think the oddities is one word they use, but they sort of talk around the, the freaks word. You know, so she leads this charge that the, they, they're kind of fighting back in, in their own sort of way against the kind of rich people who look down on them and, and this kind of mob of unruly protesters who want them out of their town or whatever. The movie has really positioned itself as this champion of the marginalized. And and, and that's a nice sentiment, sure. And it, it reflects um, a lot of the kind of feel-good culture that we see in a lot of YouTube content and Instagram inspirational quotes. And that's something that Fox is clearly trying to draft off of and, and sort of, you know, use to their advantage as leverage. And yet the movie, despite this big song, uh, otherwise, the, these characters, these marginalized people, they, none of them have really any story arcs. I, I don't remember a single one of their names because they're barely said in the movie if they're said at all. And uh, that to me just feels like the height of cynicism to use this kind of th- this vague political era where we're, we're concerned about social justice, where we're concerned about people, uh, you know, who who are not uh, given the privileges that people like myself are given to use that as this kind of cheap way to telegraph a good intention, but then to not follow through in the rest of the movie, I think is kind of ugly and it, it puts a pretty big stain on the movie. 
There seems to be something weird. I mean, this won't be the last movie released by 20th Century Fox as its own entity, but it is coming out while we're all talking about this Disney-Fox merger and the idea of increased corporatization of Hollywood and having one company in charge of everything, especially Disney, which has kind of uh, sold that empowerment and uplift that you're talking about as its product for a century. There's something weirdly symbolic about the whole thing that obviously nobody intended. Yeah, I mean, it's meta in this funny way where, like... This is a movie, and they really don't go very much into who Barnum really was, which was not this champion of the underclass, you know? He was pandering to them. But it's a movie about this kind of trickster showman guy, and the movie itself is kind of a trickster showman. I mean, it, it's saying it's doing something, but it's not. It's a humbug, as they would say in the movie. And I, I don't think that that was intentional, but it is interesting that the movie is sort of doing in a way, what the real Barnum did back then. Uh, Maybe I'm putting too much, giving the movie too much credit or too many layers or something, but all that said, I think it's still worth seeing. I sat through all three goddamn hours of The Christmas Story live, so I support musicals as much as I can because they're an important art form that, you know, as I say in the review, are not a struggle to be taken seriously. I I really have no idea if it's going to do any box office. Like, uh, to me and my sort of like film Twitter cohort, it's like the biggest movie of the year, but like, like we're a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of people. Uh, and we've already seen the movie for free. So, uh, Joanna, you are also a supporter of musicals in general. Does, do you feel like you owe this movie, uh, your attention? I am. I am a known musical lover. Um, I did not watch A Christmas Story live this year. It was the first year I spared myself the live TV musical experience because I had been like sort of increasingly disappointed by what I had seen. Um, and nothing about Twitter's reaction to the movie or the, the TV movie made me feel like I should give it a second glance. When it comes to Hugh Jackman's circus musical, however, like I'll tell you this. If I had been in town and able to go to the screening that we had in San Francisco, I would have gone. But in terms of like laying down my money for this, I think I'm going to wait and see it when it hits TV, to be honest with you. I really have no sense of what the general public's reaction or anticipation for this movie is, like at all. I know that there will be like some Zendaya and Zac Efron fans that go, but like is, I don't know that this is going to be like a Moulin Rouge, you know, sort of a, um, capture young people who love musicals wanting, you know, more musical-esque things in their life. I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know. That brings up something that I've actually kind of been thinking about more on a, on a more macro level, maybe, is that like, maybe I'm going to make a resolution for 2018 now that we're here at the end of the year, is that like, I think I need to pull my head up from film Twitter from this kind of really insular conversation because uh, there have been a couple instances, whether it's Greatest Showman or certain things about Star Wars or uh, something about Call Me By Your Name uh, where I've, uh, that I was tweeting about last week, where like I think I need to be a little bit more aware of what the general public, so to speak, where, where what their temperature is with any given movie. Because from my perspective, like everyone is like joking about the greatest showman, you know, it's a whole thing. Right. And it's like, no, it's about, you know, maybe a hundred people that I talk to online every day. It's not, it's not reality. And the call me by your name thing I mentioned was that um, last week I went to go see it again because I am moderating a Q and a, and, you know, I loved the movie. I actually liked it the, the most that I've, of the three times I've seen it. But I tweeted about that and I was like, you know, it's such a good movie. And all these people were like, you've seen this movie three times and it's not even out in anywhere but like New York and LA. And I was like, yeah, it is. It came. And, and then, I, then I looked and I was like, oh, no, it's not even out till next month. Like, for me, the conversation has blown past and it's over. And most of the country hasn't even had a chance to see it. And so I just think I need to be a little bit more cognizant of that. And 
there was a piece that someone wrote last week, I forget where it was, about how film Twitter in a way is kind of killing movie discourse because we ch- we chew up and process things before anyone has had a chance to see it. And so people just kind of feel left out and shut, you know, just shut it all out. That's something I've been thinking about. Because they have so much more access than like your average American in the middle of the country or whatever to these films. But like San Francisco is like the second market that things usually open in. So, uh, you know, I have seen Call Me By Your Name finally this last week, but I was annoyed <laughs> that I hadn't seen it until last week and that film Twitter was done with the conversation before I even got a chance to see the movie. And that annoyed me. I'm not mad at you, Richard, because you saw it uh, as you like talked to me about this. You saw it a year ago. So like, you're like, this is an old movie, guys. Um, and, and it makes it, yeah, it makes it hard. And I think that piece you, you're referencing, Richard, which I also read was sort of talking about how it further enforces some sort of weird, like coastal elitism only people who live in New York and LA and go to film festivals are allowed to talk about the, these movies. And so like people in the middle of the country who want to be part of the conversation are, are not part of the conversation. And, and that has to do with an increased year long, like this podcast, which I love, and I'm not knocking this podcast, but year long conversation about these awards films, you know what I mean? And so we've been talking about call me by your name for a year and people want to be able to be part of that conversation, but they actually just literally cannot because they cannot get access to this film. It's fascinating. I have stamped my foot many a time that I didn't have a screener for something, but I don't know how to recalibrate that. I don't know how to tell people who watched a movie a year ago at a film festival, like don't assume that the people you're talking to have seen this movie or writing for have seen this movie. You know, it's, it's just a hard disconnect. Well, and at the same time, the reason that Call Me By Your Name is kind of, or not the only reason, but it's growing as a hit and expanding all these places is because people have been talking about it in this way for a year. Like, it's building that level of attention that movies like that need. Um, and, you know, on some level, it's the same thing for something like Mudbound, which premiered at Sundance last year at the same time as Call Me By Your Name. And it's on Netflix and everyone can see it. But it is not, um, you know, the kind of at least buzzed about hit that Call Me By Your Name is. So it, it could be a solution to that problem. But the Netflix model has not yet made that happen. And I want to make it clear that, like, I was that I was, you know, I got to see Moonlight early last year at the Mill Valley Film Festival in October, which was at least, I think, like two months before it was in wide release, or at least like a month and a half. So it's not like I've never done this. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not saying that. And, and it's, it's impossible to not want to talk about, especially like with your friends on film Twitter, uh, a film that you've seen and you're excited about. Like there's, there's a, that's a good impulse. Um, but but I, I like what Richard's saying about just sort of like being aware. I mean, I think I brought this up before, but there was like, I don't want to throw a friend of the pod, Kyle Buchanan under the bus, but he was writing about the peach scene and call me by your name. And he's like that famous peach scene. And I'm like, that famous to who's seen it? You know what I mean? Like, how can you call something famous before it's, you know, and I did the same with Star Wars. I was like this can't, controversial Canto bite scene before the film had even opened, you know, like calling things controversial or famous or whatever before the majority of audiences has had a chance to see it is, is like kind of silly sometimes, I think. So. Yeah. And I think that call me by your name is a, is a particularly stringent example of this because um it's the Venn diagram between gay Twitter and film Twitter, which, you know, are two very like chatty, uh talkative groups. And call me by your name has sort of been like the, the emblem of, of like gay film Twitter for, for, you know, the better part of a year now, you know, so I think that we kind of metastasize that movie uh e- even faster than, than normal. And the problem might not be as, as pervasive as I 
feel it is because I've I've been so close to Call Me By Your Name. But you know that 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 piece, which you know we'll find and tweet out. I just can't remember who wrote it. But reading that, I was like, oh, okay. So this is not just me thinking this. This is like people are noticing this. And so I don't know. Maybe we'll just kind of try have to rethink uh, our a little bit our 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 how we kind of talk about this stuff. I at least want to know next year when movies are out because I don't. My parents are like, what should we go see? Or some, you know, a friend is like, what? I'm like, I don't know what's in theaters right now. So I'll have to go look at IMDb and, you know, go to the Showtimes thing and see like, oh, right, that's in theaters now, you know? So um, I should at least be aware of that because that's um, a pretty, pretty easy thing to be aware of. I like this resolutions for 2018 segment of the podcast. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men and for the new episodes that we'll record in 2017. Thank you for being with us this whole year. It's uh, really fun for us, especially since we get to end the year kind of in the middle of award season. It's it's really not the end. It's just the preview to the truly crazy part of the season that we love. Um, so please come back and join us in 2018. Uh, and please rate and review us on iTunes, which helps us find new listeners in this, the craziest of seasons. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, which is where you can read Richard's review of everything we've talked about and uh joanna's many many invaluable pieces about the last jedi if you have not read them i cannot express how much they helped me uh i came out of the movie and texted joanna and asked her questions and then realized that she'd already written like four pieces that explained everything i wanted to know uh which is sharing all that knowledge with everybody else you can also find us on twitter at little gold men where we love hearing from you and on our own i met katie rich richard ryla and joanna and mike is at circus mike This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and Danielle Roth, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And we should say a a goodbye to Jordan Bell, who's leaving us. This is her last episode with us, which is bittersweet because she's on to good things, but uh, she's been great. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.